Everyone, welcome this week. I've got uh, Alan Baker uh, on the Articulate Fly. He is the chairman of the board and the founding member of the Fly Fishing Museum of the Southern Appalachians. Welcome to the Articulate Fly, Alan. Well, glad to be here. Well, I'm glad we were able to do it, and I really appreciate you being one of my early guests, and I appreciate all your support for the fly fishing community and all the support you've given me as I've tried to get this out and on the road. Well, um, it's, been a, it's been a long uh, road to get that museum up. Yeah. Well, listen, before we dive in and talk about the museum, and we were just together up there at an induction for the Hall of Fame a few weeks ago, um, I always ask all of my guests, uh, what was your earliest fishing memory? Well, uh, when I was growing up, uh, there was a little stream, uh, Sensors Creek, that was in our backyard, pretty much, and uh, I fished for horny heads and sun perches and uh, white suckers. Uh, you know, we'd cut a little cane pole on the side of the creek and uh, put a line on and a worm from the garden, and, and that's how I got started fishing. And, and when did you make the jump to fly fishing? Made that jump in uh, 1981. Uh, uh, become involved with uh, a project at Sugar Mountain, uh, building a second home and, uh, you know, for skiing, for snow skiing. And I was looking for something to do in the, the warmer months. And so uh, uh, I stumbled upon a TV show one morning where Joe Hedrick was tying a fly. And it just seemed, it just seemed like the right thing to get into. So I, I went to Jesse Brown's and uh, met Joe and took a fly tying class next thing you know i'm teaching the fly tying class and and uh, he invited me to a, a, a trout unlimited meeting and it turned out it was the first meeting to resurrect the old charlotte chapter and uh, i became a charter member of the rocky river chapter and that's kind of how i got started fly fishing i tied flies for the winter months and then in the spring i was wetting the line and trying to figure out how to catch trout yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've been in Charlotte for about 20 years, and I can't think of a time I've been around the fly fishing community that I haven't seen you or been able to fish with you or talk to you. Well, it's been a while, that's for sure. But, I mean, those uh, those years between uh, uh, growing up uh, around Lenore and uh, when I went off to college, I mostly just deer hunted. I did, I did some uh, fishing uh, along the way, and when I was in the Boy Scouts, I actually caught my first trout. Uh, on a black gnat that was uh, tied uh, to a bobber behind uh, the line on a spinning rod. And uh, uh, I think it was about like a 14-inch brown there in Wilson Creek down in the gorge section. Very neat. Who were your mentors uh, growing up when you were getting into the sport? Well, I've always uh, recognized uh, my fifth-grade teacher, Gary Hartley. Uh, he was um, uh, interested in helping the kids uh, particularly the poor kids in school, and I was one of those. And um, he he would take us uh, uh, hiking up uh, uh, mountain ridges to uh, fire towers, and then when we came back down, we would rappel off of uh, any rock cliffs we'd find. And it was uh, kind of interesting, and we'd do, do camping trips. It was just a group of boys out of the school, and uh, I did that until I uh, got into the scouts. Uh, my dad was really my mentor in the scouts. He was an Eagle Scout. He wanted me to become an Eagle Scout. And um, he was involved uh, to what degree he could be. And then I've, I've always uh, felt like Joe Hedrick and uh, Joe Summer and Mike Bullock uh, were my mentors for fly fishing because when I first got started, Mike was showing me how to tie very small flies and Joe Summer was 
really showing me how to be stealthy and catch fish in wild streams. And uh, and so they, they helped me get started. And believe it or not, Lefty Craze, the very person that straightened out my casting where I could get real distance, uh, at a, I think it was at a fly fishing show back in like 1984 in Raleigh. I had 10 minutes with Lefty, and it made all the difference. And I've always gotten up with him at every show and talked to him a, a little bit and known him for a long time. Yeah, uh, we're, we're all going to miss him. I mean, it's he was such an absolute treasure and so incredibly generous with his knowledge. Um, I don't think there'll be anyone ever like him again. Yeah, I've been going through his uh, stories because, uh, you know, we're working on an exhibit for, for Lefty in the museum now. And his amazing man, he, um, you know, served in, in the Army. He had he caught anthrax and and almost died and uh, made it through that. And, I mean, he, he had gone through a lot. He was quite a, quite a person, but... You know, nobody could uh, top his ability to, you know, teach someone how to fly cast. No, he he was great. Um, so tell me, I mean, I know you were, you've been very, very active in the fly fishing community locally and nationally before you got involved with the museum. Can you talk to us a little bit about all the different things you were kind of involved with from, you know, the early 80s until the museum opened in the mid-2000s? Uh, sure. Try to keep this uh, fairly quick. Um I, I started as a charter member with the Rocky River chapter, not even knowing that's what we were doing that night. Uh, two years later, I was uh, treasurer, so I guess I was the second treasurer of the of the newly formed organization. Uh, then I uh, was vice president. Then I served as president for 1985 and 1986. Uh, during that time, our chapter was awarded the Gold, Gold Trout Award as the uh, top chapter uh, in the nation out of the, I guess it was about 350 chapters then. And uh, from there, I, I guess I got a little bit of notoriety. The next thing you know, they want me to serve on the state uh, council and be the, the director representing the state at the national board. And I think uh, when I got on the board, I, uh, my organizational skills from you know my training and working for Duke Energy and everything uh, stood out. And uh, I became the uh, chairman of the uh, Leadership and Organizational Effectiveness Committee, and we rewrote the, the chapter handbook for everyone. And uh, from there, I became uh, Southeast Regional Vice President uh, for a good number of years and, and traveled to 11 states in the Southeast. And the one thing I always wanted to fix was make the region a little bit smaller so you can get around to all of it. Um, I became uh, second vice president uh, at the point where we were working on restructuring Trout Unlimited, uh, pretty much the organizational model when I went to the national uh, board was uh, kind of governmental. You know, everyone came from their uh, state and, and uh, locations and expected the board to provide something that helped them out back where they were from. And, uh, that you know, that's kind of the Congress model. And... Um, we restructured where we had a, a, a resource board that prioritized the different problems and things we needed to work on as Trout Unlimited. And uh, we moved the, the board uh, that uh, actually controls the organization to more of a trustee level with uh, some uh, influential uh, people and uh, people that had, had funds to uh, help uh, make sure that everything 
uh, with solvent and uh, and talent. Uh, so based on having those three things, we restructured Trout Unlimited, and it, it has taken off since then. We were we were stuck at about 60,000 members when I joined the board, and when we restructured, within three years, it was 150,000 members. And um, I don't think they've had any financial problems since then either. So, yeah, I've done, done quite a bit of volunteer work. I'm, I'm a lifetime member of, of Trout Unlimited and uh, FFI, and um, I've, I've had a lifetime sportsman's license since back in the 1980s. So, yeah, been around, done a lot of that. Yeah, and you've done a, you've done the same sort of reorganization work with uh, North Carolina Wildlife, right? Yes, uh, I think it was '03 or '04. I joined the Wildlife Federation board. Uh, they were in trouble. Um, they were uh, starting to cut the newsletter back, and when you start cutting your communication, you know, trying to save money, you you cut your you know, cut your throat, so to speak, as an organization. And uh, so I basically went through the same process of uh, rewriting bylaws and, and restructuring the board. And uh, one of their problems was they kept all the past presidents on the board. And new people coming in on the board were almost intimidated in terms of trying to make change happen. And uh, so uh, we we set up an emeritus class uh, to recognize the, the service and uh, uh, they, you know, systematically re- restructured the board. And the Wildlife Federation, uh, uh, we had to cut the budget from like three quarter million down to less than a half million to get a restart. Uh, they actually was 115 thousand in debt. Uh, owed every printer and hotel room in Raleigh from doing things. And uh, now they're an organization with uh, uh, large operating reserve, and uh, they pretty much have projects funded before they start them, which is an outstanding way of doing a nonprofit. Fantastic. And so if we kind of get to the end of that road, I guess in uh, around uh, 2010 or so, you got the idea for the museum. How did that come about? Uh, Well, I was was fly fishing with uh, Ron Gomerick in Nova Scotia, and... uh, Ron was uh, in his early 80s, and we were doing kind of a last trip for him up there. He, he, his friend that he went with all the time had passed away, and uh, I wanted to catch Atlantic salmon. But we one evening we were out uh, to dinner, and uh, he went into an antique shop, saw an old Greenheart fly rod, and bought it. And of course, the rest of the week I had to kid him about he couldn't use that to fish with; it's too old and and all that. But he he basically uh, told me, he says, well, uh, you'll need to create a fly fish museum uh, so there's a place for it when I'm done with it. And, you know, I, we were just kidding around, but the idea kind of stuck with me, and I, I looked into, you know, fly fishing museums, and there's a few museums up in the northeast, and there's one out in Livingston, but we don't have one down this way or didn't have one. And um, that week we had, we had visited the... Marguerite uh, Salmon Museum, and it was it was just a house converted to a museum, and it was just a cozy place that had a very comprehensive history of salmon fishing in that area. And I mean, there was it was so rich in the way it's put together and the ideas behind it that uh, I felt like I knew something about museums, and and then I 
started poking around every time I'd go fly fishing to see if there's a building somewhere we could do something like that. I was even looking for kind of a corner in a museum that was already there. And uh, I did that for a couple of years and striking out. And then uh, Jim Cassida recommended that we, uh, or I talked to the um, Cherokee tribe. Uh, and uh, I just sent a cold email to the chamber up there, uh, Cherokee chamber. And, and they responded very possibly, want me to come up and meet with them and talk about it. And uh, soon after that, I was writing a white paper on what the Southern Appalachian, the Fly Fishing Museum of the Southern Appalachian would look like and, and uh, how it evolved and everything. And uh, the tribe uh, uh, offered a, a building, a 5,000 square foot building, and started remodeling it. And uh, we did a grand opening uh, back in June 2015. So, you know, everything uh, just kind of took off once they said they wanted a museum. And and who are the major benefactors of the museum today? Well, today, because we, you know, we've moved it over to Bryson City, uh, I'd have to say the uh, the uh, community there is a big benefactor because it uh, has enhanced uh, tourism for the town. Uh, someone comes to ride the, the Smoky Mountain Railroad uh, train, the family, and uh, they're walking around town wanting to see other things and do other things. And uh, if they see there's several museums and that's what they're into, they're, they're going to stay an extra day. And, uh, and of course, it's a big fly fishing community anyway, and so all your anglers coming through there are starting to spend a little more time in town to see the museum. And I mean, I had the uh, representative from the state legislature, Mike Clampett, he told me the other day that the fly fishing museum was a literally an economic boom for uh, Bryson City. And that's probably a little exaggerated, but uh, he was handing me a plaque recognizing Swain County as the home of the museum, which basically meant we were going to get road signage as brown signs out on the 74 that'll help draw in even more people. And we had 15,000 people come through last year, which is pretty significant for a fly fishing museum, particularly it's only a couple years old. Sure. Uh, the other benefactors, of course, are visitors because uh, they're going to learn about fly fishing. Um, the one thing we focused on is making sure the kids have a scavenger hunt or something that keeps them busy when adults come in there to look at things. And uh, older kids seem real interested in, in flies and fly fishing, but the younger kids, they get off on the scavenger hunt looking for a blue line and, and, a, and a reel and a rod and all those kind of things. And it keeps them so busy Everybody seems to go away happy as a family, so I think we've we've done a good job at that. Uh, and then I think our anglers have been benefactors because they certainly uh, are coming through and uh, supporting the museum, and and uh, many are putting you know donations uh, forward to to help support it. Yeah, and, and for visitors that haven't been to Bryson City and seen the museum yet, where is it located? Um, Two Ten Main Street, so basically. If you take exit 67, you turn at the first light, uh, you're on Main Street. It's there at the second light to the right across from the um, uh, Heritage uh, Museum or the old courthouse. Um, and we're open like 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Saturday open at 10, and uh, we're closed on Sundays. Basically the same hours as the Chamber of Commerce that operates the museum. Yeah. 
and uh, what would a visitor expect to see or to be able to do right now if they were to go by the museum? Well, the 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 building is is literally out of space at this point. Uh, we've got a, a very elaborate rod, old rod collection. Actually, there's two collections in there. One of very, very old rods back to 1848, I think. Uh, reels, uh, nets, creels. Um, we have um, a fly tying um, exhibit that recreates the 1950s type fly tying bench that you typically see in a house where somebody just, you know, has all the materials and things to tie flies in the old vices from that time period. Uh, we have the first uh, drift boat that was built and operated in the southeast. That's one of our, you know, prized uh, items uh, that we started with. Uh, we've got uh, collections of flies uh, from um, a lot of them being old Appalachian patterns, uh, but we also have uh, bass bugs and and uh, poppers and things like that because a lot of people fly fish with those. Uh, and if you go toward Virginia, a lot of people smallmouth fish uh, with some of these same flies or or at least bigger popper type flies. The um, the, the other thing we have uh, there's two things the the stream laser exhibits are uh, panels graphic panels about. Uh, old-timers, people of the past that uh, fly-fished or tied flies or had a reputation for uh, fly-fishing and conservation. And um, uh, we've we've got a few, several dozen of those in the uh, museum now with about that many more to go in when we get more space. Uh, At some point, we'll be rotating those because there's so many of them. I've got probably 100 on the list now we're working on. Um, these date back to uh, a few people back in the 17 and 1800s from the Southern Appalachians that were involved, uh, even though most of what you know about them might have been around the you know Catskills in Pennsylvania. They lived in the southeast, and they did fish in the southeast. Um, the other thing is uh, we, we have put cases uh, for exhibits by each of the uh, what I call given back organizations like Project Hill and Waters and Casting Carolinas and um, Casting for Recovery, Casting for Hope, uh, Casting for Confidence, Women on the Fly. Each of those organizations have their own history, and uh, we want to provide a place for them to, you know, put that history there and and keep it updated the way they want to display it. Um, so that's what that's kind of what we have right now. Uh, we have a theater with uh, some old movies, and uh, when we get the the new building in place, uh, we're going to expand and have a whole lot more of the same types of things and some other new exhibits. Yeah, are there any things that you're still trying to add to the collection? Oh yeah, we uh, we can always use you know unique and and old uh, uh, fly fishing items, uh, rods, reels. Uh, uh, you know, the, the the hard to come by things is finding the old gut flies, uh, you know, tied without the eye, uh, and uh, some of the tools and gadgets that were used uh, 50 to 100 years ago. Um, oh, and the other thing is homemade things, uh, where people would, uh, instead of buying the tool, uh, they'd actually make one. And uh, those we've got a few of those, and they're really really neat to see. If someone has something that they think might be of interest to the museum, what should they do? Uh, they can uh, 
you know, they can contact me or uh, uh, the museum uh, directly up there. Um, for the most part, uh, uh, it's it doesn't take much time to assess the uniqueness and value of that item. Uh, we can uh, uh, make arrangements where either it's donated, we provide a receipt because we're a 501c3, or on rare occasions, uh, uniqueness or whatever uh, is uh, sufficient. We we would do a loan if that's what they'd rather do, and uh, we, we do a contract for five years on loan items. And, uh, and we're not rigid about that. If somebody really wanted something back, then then we'd get it back to them. Uh, but uh, somebody else won't get to see it, of course, if, if it uh, if it's returned. We've had, I think, one case now in three years where something uh, was uh, sought after to be returned, and we did that. Yeah, and I'll put uh, I'll put your contact information and the museum's contact information in the show notes, and so listeners can go there if they've got something they think might be interesting and reach out to either you or the museum. Yeah, I'm working with, uh, uh, let's see, uh, a woman, her husband recently passed away, and I just received all of Cap Weesey's fly tying stuff, all of his items. Uh, the, her husband was a student of Cap Weesey, and Cap gave it to him, in his later years. Uh, I'm working with uh, the family of Ed Dahlstrom. Uh, Ed Dahlstrom uh, created the Teleco fly. And uh, there's uh, uh, probably three or four other families right now talking to me. Uh, Jasper Sweet in our uh, Rocky River chapter, uh, his daughter is contacted. And Jasper has been on my list because he was uh, a, a very strong conservationist and uh, uh, love to teach kids fly fishing, and he's as unique and, and equally important to me as as anybody on the list. Uh, but he's he's been on that hundred top one hundred list for a while. So glad to, glad to hear from her. And I know recognizing um, people that were influential in the Southern Appalachian fly fishing community is a really important goal of the museum, and you have a Hall of Fame. Um, that I think you've had three rounds of inductions for. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how the selection process works? Yes, uh, we we started that uh, our first uh, you know our first full year, uh, and in fact, the year we moved over to Bryson City, we had the uh, Hall of Fame uh, uh, luncheon. I think the next day after we opened up, uh, reopened. Um, basically, we take nominations to uh, a. a um, Kind of a, a closeout point um, for, for for picking the next class of inductees, and uh, once someone is nominated, they stay in nomination, and that uh, pool of uh, possibilities gets gets larger every year, hopefully. And um, the selection committee has a broader sense of uh, uh, who's you know who's been nominated, and uh, uh, you, you could say it's a competitiveness, but it's actually uh, by categories, uh, a, an easy means of making sure that uh, we have a you know fair and and uh, equal process of considering the uh, merits of each person that's been nominated. Um, so right now we're getting ready to do a, a major shift where the 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 uh, actually the, the due date for uh, uh, nominations for next year just closed out. We have a lot of nominations in every category. And uh, we're shifting to a springtime luncheon, which will be uh, 
tentatively March 30th. Uh, so what will happen is the selection committee will work uh, from now to about the end of the year, making decisions on uh, five inductees, basically, uh, one posthumous. And uh, we'll announce those early January and then have the luncheon uh, around March, uh, hopefully March 30th. And who coordinates that process for you at the museum? Uh, Matt Brown is uh, uh, currently the uh, chair of the selection committee, and uh, we're getting ready. Uh, we may have already done this, put the uh, nomination form uh, online, and, uh, you know, we can take those nominations year-round. We just, at September 15th, he took everything that was on file, and uh, the group will start looking at that. Uh, the selection committee, uh, it consists of past uh, inductees and some other at-large people that that committee selects. So it's it's very independent of uh, the museum board. Uh, although the board has kind of a final approval of it, uh, simply because we, we may know something uh, that the committee doesn't about something and, and uh, may have a different suggestion or a different line to, to look at. But uh, for the most part, they're, they're making those decisions. They certainly did this last time. And uh, speaking of the last round of inductions, can you tell us um, who was inducted most recently and what they were inducted for? Uh, yes. Um, the uh, uh, the categories, uh, communications, uh, that was uh, Jim Dean. That was posthumous. Jim Dean uh, was editor of Wild, North Carolina, Wildlife in North Carolina for uh, you know, 13, 15 years, and and wrote articles in there for 40 years, and he just uh, suddenly died last year. So, um, so that was communication. Conservation was Sandy Shank, uh, Green River Preserve. He he does uh, kids camps uh, in the summertime. Crafts, Kevin Howe. I don't know how many flies Kevin has invented. A lot of them are with Umqua. Uh, humanity, Joyce Shepherd. Uh, if we have a give back event, Joyce is always there. Uh, she's also serves on uh, Trout Unlimited Board, Wildlife Federation Board. She's a very busy woman. Uh, and recreation was Curtis Fleming from West Virginia. He has the uh, TV show Fly Rod Chronicles. And I understand that you also house um, the Southern Trout Magazine's Legends of the Fly Hall of Fame as well at the museum. Yes, I, I just talked to Don today. He's ready just about ready for his next round. Um, so he did a grandfather round and a first round uh, two years ago, and then he did one last year. So we've got three uh, summary plaques of the uh, Legend of the Fly Hall of Fame. Uh, I was fortunate enough last year to be one of those people, uh, and I kind of I see that as a as a reflection of uh, the success of the museum because. Literally enough people know about it uh, that uh, I got got enough votes to, to be on that. Um, and uh, so I, I think Don's ready for his next round. And uh, we're, we're home for the, the uh, uh, inductees. And uh, we're going, you know, we're talking about maybe integrating that together at some point. But uh, he certainly has a different process and approach. And, it, you know, they both work well. Sure. Well, and your award was well-deserved. Um, absolutely. Um, and I know everyone was excited about the uh, the new museum building that's being finished out right now that we were able to take a tour of uh, while we were there for the induction lunch. And can you tell us a little bit more about what, what's going to be on show once the building opens? Sure. 
when we sat down and talked about moving the museum over to Bryson City, uh, when I when I told them that uh, I needed space for aquariums, that that's what we was working on, the room just lit up. Everyone got all excited about the idea of having aquariums associated with the museum. Um, from day one, Forrest Parker, uh, who was a member of the Cherokee tribe and board member, and I envisioned having aquariums as a means of drawing families. And uh, once there, they would see the fly fishing museum items as well. And it's kind of like, uh, you could call it bait and switch, but uh, the reality is uh, fish draw people. And uh, fish draw anglers. Uh, it's what we do in fly fishing. So the uh, aquariums are going to contain uh, southern Appalachian species uh, and uh, a little bit broader uh, foot, foothill species that uh, uh, we uh, commonly see, particularly in reservoirs and things, because you know, we do fly fish for muskie and things like that, and uh, and so they they should be there. Uh, we also will have hellbenders, two two hellbenders by federal permit. They're endangered, and the. Uh, uh, the uh, critters that uh, uh, you know fish feed on, uh, minnows and all that, are, of course, are other fish to see in there. Some of them are very colorful, uh, but uh, frogs, uh, uh, turtles, all the all the things you would see uh, in, a, in an aquatic region, uh, we're going to have a living wall for some of those things. And uh, kids kids are going to love this place, and uh, therefore families, I think, will love this place. And uh, an angler comes in there, he's going to see the kinds of game fish that he pursues or hasn't pursued yet and may want to. And what we're hoping to do is show uh, flies that uh, help uh, catch a lot of those fish that are exhibited, all, you know, all live, of course. Most of the room will have to be chilled, you know, because they're cold water species. Yeah, and you're going to have classroom space as well. Yes, and... Uh, Oh, and and the main attraction is a mountain stream. We'll have a waterfall. Uh, hopefully, you can you'll see brook trout looking right at you from the underside of the waterfall, uh, which is something we've always envisioned to have as well. That sounds really really neat. Have you got uh, any upcoming events this fall? Uh, let's see. This fall we're uh, focused on. Uh, uh, being at at a, at a couple fly fishing shows, um, look for my notes here. Um, there is a fly fishing festival that Fly Shop has sponsored every year in, in Bryson City, and uh, one year we we uh, co-sponsored and did a fly fishing show expand expanded to the uh, the old rec room, but uh, uh, the recreation department uh, building uh, about half a mile out of town. Uh, this year, we're just we're just going to participate in that show, and there's a few other shows: the Fly Tires Weekend in Townsend and um, Atlanta. Those those type shows, uh, we've always had a booth. Uh, the museum is participating in the 50th uh, anniversary of Wild and Scenic up at Wilson Creek, and uh, uh, we um, uh, will be into uh, a time period where hopefully we're going to open up the aquariums. Uh, by late March when we do the Hall of Fame. 
and I'll um, I'll put links to all of those events in the show notes. So if any listener is interested in looking for more information on any of those, just uh, go to the show notes and click on the link, and you'll uh, you'll find out everything you need. Um, if people want to support the museum, what's the best way to do it? Well, uh, right now I'm 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 still needing two more uh, tank sponsors. Uh, we uh, recently uh, picked up sponsorship by Duke Energy. Uh, a tank sponsorship is basically five thousand dollars. We we had a few tanks that were a little more expensive than that, but uh, that's been the average. And uh, we have two tanks left, uh, and you know we'll we'll open even if those aren't sponsored. Uh, but uh, we could use two more. Uh, uh, you might say large sponsorships. Uh, we do have a collective sponsorship tank where someone can donate a thousand dollars and be recognized as a platinum level, or five hundred as a gold level, two fifty as a silver, hundred dollars as bronze. And so everyone that helps sponsor that uh, tank collectively will be recognized. And and. Uh, and uh- and on your five thousand dollar tanks, would for example a fishing club be able to collect money from its members and be the tank sponsor? Yes, uh, actually, a fishing club is sponsoring the Hellbender tank, and uh, that that particular setup is around eight thousand dollars now, and uh, they're they're raising the money for it. So, um, we also have had a you know a uh, annual donation level recognition that. Uh, um, you know, 1200 600 that type thing uh, that uh, we continue to have. And we have memberships. Uh, and we have a donation box right there at the museum because we do not charge for the museum itself, even though we probably will charge a small admission for the uh, aquariums. Uh, we, we don't charge for the museum itself. And do you need volunteers to volunteer their time uh, as well as their money? Uh, certainly. We... Um, the museum is pretty much operated uh, by volunteers. The daily operation is is operated by the chamber, but uh, new exhibits coming in, uh, adjustments, changes, um, activities that the museum uh, sponsors, uh, all that's done by volunteers. And uh, we, you know, you need people with different talents. And I think uh, when we moved, for example, we had 35 volunteers locally that helped us move, including the fly shop owners and uh, uh, some of the, the uh, county employees that uh, helped do carpentry work and things like that. But yes, we certainly can use volunteers. And uh, where can folks find more uh, information about the museum? Well, we, we have a, uh, a really good website. Uh, kind of gives you a, a virtual tour of the uh, main part of the museum. Uh, and you can go to that website. It's uh, uh, just Google Fly Fishing Museum, uh, and uh, it's uh, flyfishingmuseum.com. And, uh, or they can call uh, straight to the museum. Uh, the number is 828-488-3681. Great. And you've also you've got other exhibits around North Carolina as well, don't you? Yeah. The, the new... Uh, uh, the newest concept of, of, you might say, marketing the museum, uh, but getting the museum out to other people is we're doing satellite exhibits. And basically, uh, for example, we did one at Wilson Creek Visitor Center, and there's four stream blazer exhibits put together in there. Um, Cap Weesey, uh, Stanley Tuttle, 
uh, Joe McDay, and Newland Saunders. All those four people are local to that area, and uh, we we have items that uh, they had in use when they were fly fishermen in the past. And uh, we also have um, some uh, flies and things that were done by local craftsmen like Bill Everhart. Um, and we've got a video uh, that uh, displays history of Wilson Creek, uh, uh, the story about conservation in Southern Appalachia, which to me is the most important story to tell. It's it's all about the logging that we did back turn of the century, the uh, CCC camps that uh, came along to help restore the forests and the stocking of the streams to restore the fish. And uh, from there, the enhancement like uh, uh, removing uh, what we used to call trash fish uh, with stream barriers and uh, uh, and other methods to you know restore streams, uh, all the way up to you know the Clean Water Act, which has really made a big difference for our Southern Appalachian streams. Uh, so local history, conservation, and then and then some about fly fishing to educate people about uh, fly fishing itself. Uh, I've, we've done uh, a couple of those. Uh, we're getting requests at some unusual places. Even other museums now are wanting them. So the more the fly fishing museum can be somewhere else, uh, it's pointing back to Bryson City and getting people there. So the um, the travel uh, bureau at uh, uh, Swain County uh, is helping support putting in the satellite exhibits. Just a matter of time of getting getting more of those out there. Well, that, that's great, and I really appreciate you joining us uh, this evening, Alan. And um, if, you, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, folks, I'd ask you to write a review uh, or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Um, if you visit the website at thearticulatefly.com, you can subscribe to our newsletter and take a look at our blog posts. Um, I really appreciate everybody uh, listening this evening, and uh, until next time, tight lines and great fishing. Yeah, there's two things to do. Either go fish or go see the museum. There you go.